Welcome to the Leading Voices with ULI, a podcast of the Urban Land Institute. In this podcast series, we interview city builders who use innovative approaches to create healthier, more economically vibrant communities with character and a high quality of life. These leaders provide inspiration to those of us looking to play a role in building better cities. Hi, this is Matt Sleppin. Welcome to the latest installment of Leading Voices with ULI, our podcast series in which we're talking with leaders from throughout the real estate world about, well, leadership, both in terms of their own personal journey into leadership, as well as the work they're doing in the real estate business and the lessons they've learned along the way. Today's conversation is with Gotti Kaufman, who is Chief Executive Officer of RCL Co., the Robert Charles Lesser Company, one of the real estate industry's leading consulting firm. Gotti talks about growing up in Israel, his move to the States, and then his joining Bob Lesser actually while still in college and eventually taking over the firm. More than most of our conversations, this is a very personal one, focusing on Gotti's transition into leadership of his firm alongside his become a deeper, more thoughtful, and more experienced advisor to his clients. When I first met Gotti years ago, I also associated him with leadership within ULI. He will talk about his putting a priority on general industry leadership, specifically his long-term involvement in ULI. I thoroughly enjoyed my conversation with Gotti and hope that you find value in the conversation. If you've been a listener to the podcast series, you know that in my day job, I'm the founder of Terra Search Partners, a real estate-focused search firm where I get to interview leaders in the real estate business as clients and candidates. On the podcast, I get to do the same, but for the purpose of sharing unique stories of leadership and accomplishments in the different nooks and crannies of the real estate world with both ULI members and other listeners. If you enjoyed today's podcast, I hope that you will subscribe to the series which you can do on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. I invite you to review the series on the iTunes store, and we welcome your comments, feedback, and discussion on ULI's Facebook or Twitter, or via email at leadingvoices@uli.org, or to me directly at matt at Gotti Kaufman, good morning. Good morning, Matt. How are you? I'm doing great. Thanks so much for taking the time to be on our podcast series. I'm looking forward to the conversation. There's a lot that we want to cover in our conversation. And of course, we're going to want to spend the most time talking about your work and its impact in the industry as CEO of RCL Co. or the Robert Charles Lesser Company. But we also want to dive into your personal story and how you came to this place. You're fairly unique among people that I know and have interviewed in the podcast series because you're the first true consultant we've spoken with. And given what you and your company does, maybe you come to this conversation with the broadest perspective on the industry of all the people I've spoken with. Maybe as an introduction and before we get into your background, just kind of give us an overview of what you do and what your company does and kind of context for that. Happy to do so, Matt. Thank you very much for inviting me, and I'm humbled by the request for this conversation and delighted to have it. 
RCLCO was formed almost exactly 50 years ago by Bob Lesser, a, an architect from L.A. with an uh, undergrad and, and master's degree in architecture from Berkeley, UC Berkeley, and then once completing a short but very successful career in architecture, he became a consultant. Uh, and this is back in the mid-60s when there wasn't an established world for real estate consulting, particularly not for feasibility and economic consulting. And that was the foundation of the firm. Uh, over the 50 years since then, the firm has gone gone through a number of evolutions in, in staying in top, on top of and abreast with changing trends and requirements. Today's RCLCO continues to be economics-based. Uh, we render advice on feasibility, valuation, and project-level optimization for broad range of real estate products and geographies, certainly throughout the United States and North America, but also around the globe. I, I want to talk about how you got here. And okay. so let's kind of scroll scroll back a little bit. And I think, I, I know you were, grew up in Israel. Talk to us a little bit about growing up and then how you got to the U.S. and maybe Israeli kid got to Brigham Young University or something like that. So uh, tell us <laughs> well, your story a little bit. That, that, is, that is a story. I'll try to keep it brief. I was born and raised in, in Israel, in Tel Aviv, uh, then ended up, uh, my parents moved to the south where we lived in a small community that was very tight-knit, uh, and it was an old moshav, which is a collaborative agricultural community in its origins. By the time we moved there, it was just a suburb of the town we lived in, but a great place, very free-flowing, and I, my my uh, my memory of summers was that come June 20th, which was the last day of school, and you got home from school, you threw away the sandals and the shirts, and then for the rest of the summer, just ran around in shorts and and no shirts and just had fun. And that kind of a freedom that, that we enjoyed as kids in a country that at the time, this is the 1960s, was going through a an economic development story unmatched. And we now see the outcome of it. But back then, it was a pretty austere place. And very quickly, we learned how to rely upon ourselves and how to um, sort of and enjoy the freedoms that we had. Uh, at the age of 11, we went through the Six-Day War, which was an eye-opening experience, obviously, for a little kid. And then in the, the early 1970s, when I was 22, we went through, oh, sorry, when I was 17, we went through the uh, Yom Kippur War, the October War, which was two very different experiences, but nonetheless, ones that leave long-lasting impacts on, on somebody growing up. So we kind of learned to live with a duality of, of great idyllic life in an austere place from an economic point of view, but making having a great quality of life and, and enjoying the freedoms and the, lib and the liberties that we were uh, kind of steeped in as a society back then and a great sense of patriotism, and then going through those two uh, wars in between. Shortly after the war, I joined the military, as anyone does, in Israel, served uh, three and a half years in, in the Israeli Air Force. And, and that was my first taste of what my career was going to end up being, which I didn't know at the time, but certainly ended up being informative. Upon graduation from uh, officer's training course, uh, I got assigned to a unit at the Air Force, and my job was to manage the uh, recall system for about a 900-person unit that the, the reservists, which are all folks in Israel that have gone through military service, continue to serve for a couple of decades. 
as reservists, uh, which means that they're on call. Uh, and they also spend a period of time each year in active duty. My job was to make sure that all those folks were available and uh, showed up when they were supposed to show up and were available for an emergency recall. And the unit that I was in charge of was in a bit of a disarray when I showed up, and I managed to turn that situation around uh, pretty quickly. The Air Force noticed and kind of made me a consultant to other units and to other officers in my position. And that was my first management consulting assignment. Uh, I didn't know it at the time, but that's how I became a, cons- a management consulting consultant. Consultant and a problem solver. Many years. Yeah. Problem solver, but, but also help others figure out how, how to get it done. And what I learned from that experience is that what I really liked was not so much the doing, but the thinking about the problem and then teaching others how to solve it, which again became very indicative. That's why I never crossed the, the, the street, if you will, and became a developer because I found the intellectual engagement of pro- solving the problem much more rewarding than the, the enjoyment from seeing a project come out of the ground and become a reality. I live vicariously through all of my developer clients and friends, but don't envy their positions. How, how did I get to uh, RCL Co.? To make a long story short, I received a scholarship from Brigham Young University and used that as an opportunity to come across the water and, and, and land in America. Loved the time at BYU. was great. I spent a year there. At the end of that year, I opted out of the continuation of the scholarship and transferred to UCLA, which is how I got to Los Angeles, where I now live, still live, and studied economics and then took what I thought was going to be a, a one-year job before going back to grad school. I had three interviews that I set up for myself, and uh, one of them was at RCLCO. The other two were not in real estate. I had no focus on real estate at the time. I simply was kind of thinking about what might be an interesting experience just for a year or two to work and learn something and save a little money so I can go back and finish grad school. And I took Arcielco because I liked Bob Lester and I thought that he was a very interesting man. Uh, incidentally, it was the lowest offer. So as an economist, that did not do a good job uh, in optimizing my opportunity at the time. But I think in the long run, it turned out great. And in fact, uh, I, w- I was captivated by Bob and by the firm and what we did, which was real estate consulting, obviously, economic consulting. And, and then it just became sort of a lifelong journey. I've been yeah. here now 38 years. And wow. in those 38 years, I've had four different careers. So before the four careers, go back for a second. I'm curious of both your reactions as an Israeli kid from the south of Israel. And I've been meaning to sneak in there that I lived on a kibbutz uh, in the Negev for Good. about three or four months uh, called Shtebo Care back in that sure. same year in the late 70s. Of so course, maybe that was a similar background or similar place to where you grew up. But we, we, we probably hitchhiked together in Israel. <laughs> we may have. <laughs> Didn't even know it. Yeah, right. But so what's it like for young Israeli kid A to get to Brigham Young, B to get to UCLA and then just and kind of longer term, what's that background bring to you today? How does that in, invest your activities? Yeah, well. That's a fantastic question, uh, Matt. I, I break it down to two aspects of it. First, as a as an Israeli kid, growing up in a country that was moving from third world to first world in the probably the, the first one third of that transition, 
mm-hmm. where we we had just come off as, as a kid in school, right? We come off the War of Independence and then the War of 56, then the War of 67, which were interesting wars, and we can spend a lot of time talking about that. But what was steeped in us was the sense of patriotism, the can-do attitude, the fact that you got to make do with not a whole lot in that you as an individual, regardless of gender, background, economic status of your household, but that you as an individual have the responsibility and the opportunity to optimize your potential. Uh, and mm-hmm. out of that comes a whole generation. I, I, I don't think I'm unique that way, but certainly I'm representative of it, of people who are proactive, take charge, who are self-directed, self-motivated, and who are are high achievers. And it's not unique to Israelis because many baby boomers are high achievers, but I think it's unique to Israel to have such a high proportion of high achievers and, and, and people who are go-getters. So I come here, in, in, you know, in 1979, as a young go-getter, hungry uh, and willing to do what it takes because that's what I had to do all along. But I come here with one more skill set in addition to that, and that is military service. Again, I don't think it's unique to Israel, but it certainly is is a part of my upbringing and my background in the military, anywhere where you serve in the military, if it's going to be a serious duty uh, service, you will learn three things, and they're going to be with you for the rest of your life. One is you'll learn to depend on yourself. You'll, you'll learn that what you think are your limits are not your limits, and what you think that you can do, uh, you can actually outdo. And it's a matter of perseverance and trying and relying upon yourself to to solve a problem, to solve a situation, to take advantage of an opportunity, and to protect yourself. The second thing you you learn very quickly is that you can't do that without learning how to rely upon others. That your unit mates, your your platoon mates, your your other the other folks that you work with, you have to be able to rely upon them, and you have to navigate their personalities, their needs, and their skills and, and abilities to complement yours and, and negotiate the, the differences because you're going to have to rely upon them and you have to learn how to do so. And the third one, which maybe is the most important at the end of the trifecta, is that you, mm-hmm. have, you, you, you learn that you have to be dependable. You have to be reliable and dependable, and others need to be able to rely upon you. Any failure on each, any one of these three could be life or death difference. In most of my career, I did not have to deal with life or death situations. But nonetheless, in the few moments and a few times where it came close to that, then I learned that or, or those three lessons uh, became very clear. That translates well beyond the military. For the rest of my life, in, in, in business, in personal, in family, in friendship, th- those three uh, abilities, skills, experiences have informed, I think, a lot of my decisions, and to the extent that I've been successful, a lot of my success, because one of those three, if not all three of them, at the critical point in time, came to play. It's fascinating. Uh, through the podcast series, I talked to leaders all the time and leaders are able to go back into their lives, their history, their experiences and draw lessons in an incredibly articulate thought through way. And it always both ties back to things that they've experienced through their lives and then ties up to how they behave today. And that was as yeah. good a summary as I've ever heard of what your experience was. And and there's something well, magical you. 
and I think has something to do with uh, both the economic success and the great achievements in Israel of compulsory military service, egalitarian military service. Well, it's, uh, I, I agree with that, and I think that the that, that can-do attitude, the optimistic, no matter how difficult the situation may seem, there is a way out, and we will succeed. With together with perseverance, leads to uh, I think success in 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 the face of adversity. Certainly, has helped me a lot in my management and leadership of of teams, whether it's ULI teams working on programs or or membership or any of the other things that I've participated in, RCLCO teams when we're trying to uh, figure out the future and how to get to it or address a a crisis or a problem that we're facing or a client situation where the client is facing adversity of one sort or the other. That ability to kind of go back to one of those three basic cores and Mm -hmm. having the underlying attitude that says, you know, hey, Israel succeeded with uh, against all odds. I was part of that success. I've learned from it. That's embedded in my DNA. We will if we if Israel can solve its problems, we can solve our problems. Let's let, let's get to it. And, and it's amazing how it really does work. So those you're right, Matt. Those those things are roots become roots to uh, behavior and thinking, and it's always very helpful to kind of go back to that uh, reservoir. And and on another conversation, we'll come back to the difference of what those relatively black and white and more simplistic idealistic times in Israel might have been in the 70s versus what it's become today. But let's not start that conversation. Let's not do that. No, it's too much on this podcast. But but let's keep going. So you meet Bob Lesser and fall in love with real estate. So talk about those early years and how how you got hooked. Those were great years. Bob Lesser has launched the company in in 1967, and very quickly, through a, a set of relationships and maybe perhaps serendipity, uh, connected with very interesting people, one of which was Victor Palmieri. Victor Palmieri, if you recall, was the, the turnaround artist of the 1970s, 60s and 70s. Uh, and well into uh, the beginning of the 80s anyway. So when big companies like Levitt or uh, the uh, Central, the, the railroad company, and some of the insurance companies got in trouble, Victor Palmieri was called to help. And his real estate go-to guy was Bob Lesser. So we got to work on broken up Newtown, like, like the Woodlands and Columbia and other examples like that. We got to work on the Levittown portfolio. Uh, we got to work on the Penn Central real estate portfolio from New York to Washington, D.C., and everything up and down the corridor. And we got to do the market research that supported the real estate strategies that were used in the bankruptcy or in the turnaround of those companies. And I got to sit in the room and watch and listen and learn from these great minds dealing with these very complex projects and very complex problems. And uh, I was invited early on to actually have a speaking part, not just sit there like a fixture on the wall, but really right. provide input, share information. And, and often Bob would ask uh, one of two questions <laughs> that will never leave me. In, in working sessions, he would say, well, explain to me why. 
you know, it doesn't matter what, uh, why, what, right? But he always wanted to know, and I think he knew the answer already, but he always wanted to know that I am thinking about why things happen the way they do, which is very consistent with my natural curiosity. But he definitely made me think about it and made me articulate it, which was very, very helpful when finally he would ask that question or a client would ask a question in a in a client environment, right? Because now you not only are able to articulate what the result of, of the work was, but also the why. Uh, and, and that's the most powerful word in the English language, I think. Why? Why mm-hmm. are these things working the way they're working? If you know why, you can solve a lot of problems. So that was one question. The other question was that, that, that he liked to ask was, walk me through this a little slower, which makes you kind of be sure that you actually went through all the steps of the analysis to get to the final answer. And those two fundamental questions have informed the rest of my career as a as a analyst, as a consultant, uh, and as an industry player. But those early days were super interesting uh, in, in that I got to be involved in those cases. Now, Bob Lesser became a very, very busy man, and he had to be in 20 different places at the same time. So soon after I joined the firm, he began to empower me to go and meet with clients, potential clients, on my own. And uh, he must have had a lot of confidence. I'm not sure why he got that confidence in me, but he sent me to to meet with new clients. And I remember one of my first early clients of my own was a fellow by the name of Mark Fine, a big ULIer. Many people at ULI know Mark from Las Vegas, who uh, was at that time, 1980, was recently invited to run a project called Green Valley for his father-in-law, who uh, who was Matt Greenspan, who ran the local newspaper in Las Vegas, and real estate investing was kind of like his hobby. Mark, who who, had, who has done real estate investment banking in New York, came to Las Vegas to run the business and asked some people, well, who should we ask for marketing advice? And Bob Lesser names came up, and Bob Lesser couldn't go, so I went. And it became very clear to Mark and to me both in the first meeting that we didn't know who knew less about real estate, <laughs> but we kind of vowed to together solve the problem. And Green Valley ended up being a very successful master plan community uh, in Las Vegas. And Mark and I became fast friends. But it was those kinds of experiences that that really inspired me to, to, to understand real estate and to get uh, deep into that space. And the deeper I got, the more I loved it, the people, the real estate itself, the creative process of trying to figure out what a property could be, what a project could become, what the opportunity might be when you look at raw land or you look at a dilapidated structure and you say, well, what could this be where we merged our economics with our creative and critical thinking and Bob Lesser's architectural background, which really imbued us with a sense of sensitivity for design. And those three things together, economics, the opportunity, and creativity, both aesthetic and deal-making, are kind of like the foundations of what we now do. Uh, And I think I I have that to to thank to Bob Lesser from back in the late 70s, early 80s. Mm -hmm. If you work through enough of these projects, you you said neither you nor Mark Fine knew a lot at the time, but then you work through it, solve problems, ask why, 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 got answers to those questions, experimented, and then brainstormed and got through it. And you do that multiple yes, times over 20 years, you become a wise person. <laughs> 
I, I, I don't know about the wife thing, but certainly you become <laughs> a very experienced person. So how did the transition with Bob Lesser happen for you to take over the business? And when and how did that happen? It actually happened a lot sooner than I would have expected. Bob Lesser in 1982 decided that he was going to facilitate ownership. Well, let's roll back a bit. When I joined in 79, I came straight out of UCLA for what I thought was going to be a one-year tenure. We covered that. At the same exact time or within weeks of the same time, Chris Leinberger, who, who I know you know, Matt, uh, yeah. who's now with Brookings and uh, he's a chairman of the real estate department at uh, George Washington University. Chris Leinberger joined the firm. Chris at that time was about two years out of business school, went to Harvard Business School, worked uh, in, in Northern California for a food uh, services company where he served as the strategic planning deputy to the CEO of that company. And Bob Lesser was looking for someone to run the firm day-to-day for him because, as I said earlier, he had to be in 20 different places all the time. And he settled on Chris, uh, brought, uh, not settled, but kind of focused on Chris. Chris mm-hmm. joined the firm in 79 at about the same time as I did. In Chris's deal with Bob, there was embedded a an agreement that Chris would like to, or Bob would offer Chris ownership in the firm within a three-year timeline. So 1982 came about and Bob and Chris uh, were working through that ownership thing, and they developed a program, and and I was invited to be a minority partner. So that's how I became a partner in the firm. That Bob and Chris structured a a pretty smooth transition, so it was an interesting transaction, made it relatively easy for Chris and us, for all of us, to buy the company from Bob. There were three of us at the time and made it lucrative for Bob to continue to be involved in that began a a transition period. A few years later, one the third partner that we had initially decided to move to Hawaii and change careers, uh, which which he did is uh, still a good friend and a great guy. And Chris and I became equal partners. That was in 1984-85. And uh, then Chris and I together kind of ran the firm for the next 15 years. In 2000, Chris uh, decided to uh, transition into academia, joined Brookings, and uh, began to do the things that he's doing now. And, and, and that's when I bought him out, and we then turned around and facilitated ownership to the key managers in the company. So now we have about seven, seven owners to the firm, eight owners, actually. All the key senior managers of the firm have a, a piece of it, uh, and we work as a collaborative partnership. And when you and Chris took over in 84, 85, did you hit 30 yet or were you still in your late 20s? I was still in my late 20s. <laughs> I was still in my late 20s. So that was I, – I, I often tell anybody who cares that uh, I, I'm glad that I had that experience. But I, I really, in a way, uh, both Chris and I, but I shouldn't speak for him, I feel like I had a lot more responsibility than, than I was qualified for. And I think I muddled through it. And I would strongly advise people who have this kind of an opportunity to do some of the things that I did not do, but should have in retrospect. When you have an opportunity, uh, I believe you go for it. So I wouldn't turn it down. But we did not put together an external board to benefit from the wisdom of those who have been through the journey before. And since we did not have the experience, we lacked perspective. I don't think we made huge mistakes, but I think we did pass on opportunities to do things better. The second thing I didn't do was to learn to set my ego aside early enough. And I think that for 
uh, the first 10 or 15 years, I was way too focused on what, what is important to me rather than what's important to the company for its long-term success. And I think that inadvertently, although I never really intended to, uh, inadvertently, I may have not contributed to the development of some of the folks that were with the firm at the time and, and even some of the folks that are still here now. And, uh, and, and I always thought that I'm the you know, that, that, that I'm the smartest guy in the room. And uh, that really did not help, I think, in creating an even better company. I don't think it, there was enough of it to be fail or flawed, but certainly in retrospect, that's a lesson that I learned that uh, would have been good to have learned it a bit earlier. Uh, uh-huh. And last one is that although uh, I've learned to rely on people, as I was talking earlier about the military. I don't think that I allowed myself uh, and allowed others to come close enough to the line where I truly had to rely upon them. And that was really my own hang-up. I suppose I just didn't trust them enough, and, and that is not because they were not trustworthy enough. But it was just that I was not mature enough. It may be, in retrospect, pardon my my pouring my heart out here, but uh, in retrospect, maybe I wasn't self-assured enough to be able to uh, to, to rely upon others uh, more. I think I've learned my lessons from that, and for the past 15 or so years, I think the, the style has been different uh, and the results are different. So I feel like uh, gratified, at least to some extent, by applying those lessons. But I would encourage any young leader that is faced with a kind of independence that I had where there was no oversight, no supervision, no accountability mm-hmm. from any but anyone but myself and my my partner Chris, who was, you know, a little older than me, but also similarly not that experienced, that uh to, to seek that counsel, to rely upon others and to be more trusting. Thank you for sharing that one. And let's drill down a little bit on it, because the setting ego aside and delegating and maybe getting senior advisors, they all fit together. Sometimes for super strong people, I think it maybe takes maturity to get to the place of understanding your ego and maturity of getting to the place that you can't do it all by yourself. It, uh, you know, I, I, <laughs> I have a slightly different perspective, Matt, but, uh, mm-hmm. but maybe, maybe an unfair one that for me it took maturity. If I was wiser, it would have been wisdom, right? So mm-hmm. with, with time, maturity drove wisdom and wisdom kind of brought these lessons about. But I think that there are a lot of wise people that do make better choices than I made and, and I salute them. But for those who may still be thinking about these kinds of things or may find themselves in an environment where they are an entrepreneur, whether they're starting out or they are uh, in the growth stage of their business or they are a young family member who took over a family business or is taking over a family business or someone who is, uh, you know, it's kind of in my, like in my case, was a hired gun but landed in a spot where suddenly they had a lot more authority, autonomy, responsibility. I, I hope that they take this to heart. Fantastic advice. So how do you let go? How, as you've grown in this and as your business has matured with true partners, you said there's a group of six people who are co-owners with you. I think that was the number. How do you begin to let go? How do people come up with their own great ideas? How do you foster that environment? And how do you teach yourself to foster that environment? I'm not sure I really know how to uh, how that really happens in, in in terms of day-to-day. I think for me, it's mostly a matter of attitude and communications. And let me elaborate a bit. I, I often talk with with my colleagues, uh, both, uh, you know, my peers and the people that work 
with our firm about you know the the, the foundations the the spirit of what we want to see our company as what you know how we got to where we got sort of how did the innovations and the inventions that we have experienced in the past came to be what have we tried and fail uh, and failed doing what have we tried and succeeded in doing and why we did all those things kind of focusing on the fundamentals that say you know if you're going to be a, a surviving firm in the long run and you're going to thrive then doing what you're comfortable doing today is going to run its course and you always have to think about what is going to be needed next. Peek around the corner, think about what what others are not seeing, and uh, and try to get in front of it or take advantage of it if it's a problem or an opportunity, respectively. And I think that kind of talk helps me and people think about trying to anticipate and trying to invent new ideas. Uh, then the spirit that says, look, you know, we've done these initiatives and, you know, this person accomplished the following and this person is working on the following and this person has tried and didn't work out on this thing, but now they're doing this other thing. And this leading by example, or at least showing the examples within the firm and outside the firm helps facilitate this volunteer step up and become an inventor or become a incubator of an idea. And we, we don't love to fail, but we don't mind failing in developing ideas because we know that our future is tied to that. You know, we, what we do today is very different from what Bob Lesser did 50 years ago and even what we did 10 or 15 years ago. And we fully know that what we're going to do in 15, 20 years it would better be different than what we're doing today or we may not survive. So, Enough talking about it, I think, creates that kind of a spirit. Then the next piece is then, you know, being really committed to allowing for things to not succeed. And I don't want to call it failure, but, you know, sometimes you have to extinguish an, an idea that ran its course or, or didn't make it off the ground. And and doing that in a in a fair, kind, and, you know, and, and, and respectful manner to the idea and to the people, I think, allows others to feel like it's okay to take a risk and to try. And I think that together creates the kind of framework that facilitates this culture of taking risks and trying new things and, and hoping that they work. And if they don't, that's OK. And we'll try something else. I also wonder, I don't know if this is the case in your company, but it is in many of our clients and, and others. And, and, and we've struggled with this in, in my own small business from time to time, which is you hire role players. You hire people to get a job done. And you think you can't afford to hire the person who might be able to be it, do it all and, and challenge you in that way. Or you hire people younger in their career to learn from you, but not someone to challenge you. And I see it with a lot of particularly real estate entrepreneurs. They have to be the big person in the room. And again, lots of great role players, but no one who's the obvious successor. Yeah. Well, the, there's two questions there. One about who, who do we bring in, and then the other one is how do we create uh, succession uh, plans uh, mm -hmm. w within our firm. We actually emphasize we are not as focused on bringing, bringing people for specific roles as much as we're looking for people that have basic qualities, which I think will make them very good at any role, not just the one role that we may, may need them to fill today. And the kind of qualities we look for are really I guess you can get them down to just a handful of, of basic traits 
goes without saying they have to be smart and intelligent and come from you know good good back education background and career background if if they already had worked so that goes without saying but besides that we we look for people who are self starters because we learned that we are not as good in supervising and managing what people do every day and and certainly not how they do what they do every day. So we want to focus on, we want to populate our firm with people who will manage themselves and who are always motivated to do better. Then we look for people who are curious because, again, we emphasize the why uh, or the, the, the need for the why. So curious people usually will continue to explore ideas and they lend themselves also to becoming entrepreneurial innovators and kind of chase an idea for for the sake of chasing the idea and you know you never know what comes out of it then we look for people who are articulate both in written and, and verbal form both because articulate people will engage in a conversation which will satisfy their curiosity and they'll learn more and of course they'll be engaging to our clients and to their colleagues which is very important to create that culture of collaboration and 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 thinking together through things in the firm uh, in our lunchroom uh, two-thirds of the conversations are about experiences people are having in and around their work and in the real estate world and one-third is about reality tv and everything else but it's a combination of both and they engage in really i mean i, I love being a fly on the wall and just kind of standing around around kind of breaking bread with a, with a team just to listen to what they're talking about. And it's fascinating how their intellectual curiosity is is weaving the direction of the conversations and it, it's all over the board. So curiosity, I mean, articulation, uh, being able to be articulate is, is very important. And, uh, and I think we're looking for people who are interesting. They have an interesting background. They have interesting hobbies and interests. And they're not just the old IBM mold, right, wearing a white uh, shirt and a dark suit and a dark tie and the same haircut for everybody. And that diversity, that curiosity, that mix of traits is what makes the team that we have be so good. So let's change the subject a little bit. You know, I've been involved with the Urban Land Institute for 25, 30 years. And when I first became involved, you were one of the core people that I observed in the organization. And, you know, we were both in our 30s then, so this is a long time ago, but you've done it for a long, long time. Um, talk about your industry involvement, talk about a little bit about ULI, but I think it's a more general question, and how you see the importance of that for our industry and for what you've done. Sure. Well, ULI has been a huge part of my life. You, you're right about that, Matt. I joined in 82. I think I was 26 at the time. And uh, that was one of the first early things that Bob Lesser said, you know, you really got to go to ULI. At the time, we did a lot of work with Fritz Gruppi, who um, ultimately became chairman of, of ULI, as, as you know. Mm-hmm. And we were in Stockton in Fritz Gruppi's offices, Bob and I together, to work on, on some projects with, with Fritz. And we had a a meeting at his office. And at the end of the meeting, Bob said to Fritz, I think that uh, it'll be great if you can help Gotti get involved with ULI, because I think that he's a guy that you can probably count on to work. Fritz then was just stepping down as chair of the residential council. And uh, Stan Ross was his successor. So in his departing thoughts to Stan, he encouraged Stan to appoint me to his council and to actually put me to work. Mm-hmm. So 
at the ripe age of 26, Stan Ross asked me to be the program vice chair for the residential council. And that was in my very first meeting at ULI. So (laughs) that was that was really going into the deep end of the pool without uh, him knowing whether I can swim or not and without him providing me with, with a life vest. So I did that. Then I was asked to continue to chair other committees, uh, councils and membership and that kind of stuff. And I found, that, and, and I've done a million other things with EOLI at the local level, at the, uh, mm-hmm. I did advisory panel services. And what I found through all this was that Everybody would tell me, my God, you put so much time into ULI. Do you, do you ever have time to do your job? And and I was and, and I I felt like I'm getting so much out of ULI. I'm not giving ULI enough back mm-hmm. for for what what I'm getting out of it. I looking back on my career and my involvement with the ULI, some of my best friends I met at ULI. Some of the most interesting projects that we were involved with are directly or indirectly related to people I met at ULI or and interacted with, with at ULI. I've learned an inordinate amount from ULI. One of my biggest learning experiences was Jerry Bell training when I was a young pup on the program committee when he taught how to put together a program, how to organize a session, how to coach the speakers, how to be a good moderator, skills that, you know, I was just like a sponge absorbing from Jerry Bell, that knowledge. And then to this day, I apply that uh, every time I put a session together or every time I organize a program. So I've, I've gotten a lot of practical, tangible skills and knowledge, as well as emotional and almost spiritual benefits that are a lifetime. YPO and ULI have made an inordinate impact on me and my development as a person, as a professional, and and as a member of society. So last question. You've been bi-coastal for a long time. You've split your time one way or the other between your office in Bethesda, your office in Los Angeles. Your wife's a professor of political science at UCLA. You have two daughters. I think they've been in the business, are in the business, have been in the business. Kind of talk a little bit about bicoastal. Talk about your partnership with your wife. Talk about synergies and maybe bringing up two young girls. Yep. Well, Karen and I actually met at work. Probably was subject to uh, some inappropriate behavior back then. In, in 1984, Don't she joined there. us as a summer. <laughs> yeah, right. As a summer associate between first and second year of business school at UCLA, in our LA office. And shortly after she joined the firm, we began dating, and we got married uh, the following year. So, you know, my father-in-law in our wedding said, "I never met a man who would go to greater lengths to secure the services of a good employee." And he he was right in many ways. Uh, our our partnership has been incredible. We are rounding out our 32nd year of marriage, and she is a terrific uh, life partner and a, and, and a super friend. She decided not to go back to school and become a professor after our first daughter, Katie, was born, who is 29. She'll be 30 this year. And uh, went back to school, became a professor of political science, and then ended up getting a job at the University of Maryland, which is why we moved from L.A. to Washington, D.C., where we have had an office, but I was obviously not stationed in that office. We spent the ensuing 13 years back east, where she ran up the leadership uh, of, of that department, and then 
earlier this decade, we moved back to L.A., where she's now back at UCLA. So the bi the, the coastal thing was basically a product of allowing Karen to uh, pursue her dreams and aspirations and, and uh, an academic career while, you know, I continue to run, to run our business. And I think that that tells you a little bit about not just me, but also how our company kind of kind of works. One of our core values, something that was completely embedded in my upbringing in Israel, is gender blindness, if you will. We in Israel, women have always been treated equal with men, and women just like men serve in the military, and women just like men have equal access to opportunities in business and otherwise. So it never crossed my mind that women should be treated differently until I came to America when I realized that ah, you know that's not exactly how it is out here. So at RCLCO and all my life, I have really battled that kind of discrimination or any kind of negative treatment of women uh, in any way or inequality, at least, if not negative treatment. And Karen only helped me realize even more ways in which I can do that by uh, offering opportunities to women, creating uh, environments where mothers can work and, and, and ha uh, have a career and be a mother and not have to trade one one for the other, and, and try to make this a, a friendly place for anybody from regardless of background, regardless of gender. And I hope that that's the kind of world that my daughters uh, get to uh, live in. Gotti, I think we're going to have to cut it here. I have so much more to ask you about and talk to you about, but that's uh, that's over a meal sometime and a glass of wine. Sounds like a plan, Matt. It's been an honor and a pleasure. We hope you enjoyed this installment of the Leading Voices with ULI podcast, hosted by the Urban Land Institute. To learn more about ULI's leadership network or to join ULI as a member, please visit uli.org. 